All right, so we're here at the final chapter in Zechariah, chapter 14. And this chapter, I actually preached um, this, through this chapter uh, several months ago where I talked about the day of the Lord in Zechariah. So there's going to be some repeat uh, in this message on things that I covered back then. But at the same time, we're definitely going to look at some, uh, some other things along with that that haven't been covered before. And just to kind of finish this up and close up, close out this series through the book of Zechariah. So just a couple of things I want to remind you before we start going through this chapter, just a few concepts I want us to understand is that uh, whenever we are, are looking at this book, it's important that we look at it the way that Israel would have looked at it back when it was given, the way it would have been understood in Zechariah's day. And unfortunately, many people miss a lot because whenever they read this entire book, they're just constantly looking for the future prophecies that are in there. Not realizing that most everything that was written in this book, it had an intention to be fulfilled, I believe, at Christ's first coming. And we see in chapter 12 and in chapter 13, things that clearly were fulfilled at Christ's first coming. But when we get to chapter 14, I don't believe there's anything in chapter 14 that was fulfilled at Christ's first coming. But at the same time, I do believe pretty much everything that we see in chapter 14 is coming for the future. So at the same time, though, we do need to ask ourselves whenever we're using Zechariah chapter 14 to talk about future events, we do need to be able to explain why the massive gap. Why in the world, you know, how could, you know, were the people in Zechariah's day, you know, which, would they have had any way of understanding that there was going to be a, at least a 2,000 year gap in between what we see going on in chapter 13 and in chapter 14? And the dispensationalists, they would say, no, you know, that was, but it's just that whole mountain peaks of prophecy thing, like I explained. They saw the one peak of Christ's first coming. They could see the second peak of Christ's second coming that was behind it. But they couldn't see what was in between in that valley, meaning the church age. Okay, And while that looks good on a chart, and while on one hand it kind of makes sense, you know, I don't think God wrote this in a way where they were not able to understand it or that was going to have something just completely hidden in there. I believe it was intended to be fulfilled at the same time. We see in the Old Testament, it will talk about the day of the Lord being at hand. How could the day of the Lord been at hand, you know, if it was referring to something, I mean, over 2,000 years in the future, when the Apostle Paul, when writing about the day of Christ, said it's not at hand. Over, you know, I mean, the Apostle Paul, hundreds of years later, said, let no man deceive you that the day of Christ is at hand. And then the dispensation would say, well, the day of Christ and the day of the Lord are two different things. Okay, but the day of Christ still comes before the day of the Lord. So if the day of Christ is not at hand in their world, all right, then the day of the Lord definitely can't be at hand. Seeing, according to their teaching, that comes before the day of the Lord. So something obviously changed if the day of the Lord was at hand and now it is not at hand. What changed? What changed was Israel rejected the Messiah. Israel did not do the things that the prophets told them to do. And so as a result of it, God did not cast them away. Okay? Romans 11 proves that. But God did 
break off those natural branches from the vine. But, and God did conclude them all in unrighteousness. But at the same time, that was now making a way for them to still be saved if they will abide not still in unbelief. Because Jesus Christ came and died on the cross and did all that He did, Israel can still be saved just like everyone else. The same way we are. And then they can be grafted back in if they abide not still in unbelief. So, some, some things change. Alright, so now... The things that we see, we do see things fulfilled, uh, that were filled at Christ's first coming in chapters 12 and 13, but there were things that were not fulfilled there. And really, I don't believe anything has been fulfilled from chapter 14, but the thing, there are things that will be fulfilled at Christ's second coming. Why is that? Because God has always had a plan. God has always had, uh, his intention of, you know, bringing righteousness to this world. And he is still going to do these things, even though Israel messed things up for themselves. It ended up and ended up delaying things. It's still going to get done. Okay, but there might be some things that are a little different. And so, as we go through this, we might see a couple things that I personally believe have changed under the new covenant. And um, you know, and I tell you, there's been a, a lot that you know in looking at things in this life has helped me a lot in my study. Um, and, I mean, there, and there's still a lot more to learn on this. Uh, in fact, I might have even come to a realization of something today that may be another breakthrough big time. I don't know, I don't know yet. Is this, you know, when your mind's wandering at work sometimes, you think about biblical things. And I was thinking about that today, and I was like, there's, there's one passage in the New Testament I've just never fully understood. And I might get it. I, I, I might get it now. I'll tell you all about it after church. I'm not going to say anything publicly now because I could be dead wrong. All right, it might be, might be just a brick wall. So that's why you, you I always tell people you got to get the good stuff after church. All right, so those watching the live stream, that's what you got to be here for the, <laughs> for the for the real good stuff. You'll get it all eventually once I've sorted it all out and made sure made sure I'm right on these things. But anyway, let's go ahead and go through. <clears throat> the first coming, and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna have some fun too, because just kind of showing what the dispensationalists and the pre-tribbers teach about this chapter. And you're gonna see too, when it comes to the dispensational view of Zechariah chapter 14, the problem that they have is that they either one just don't know how to read, or two, they have already decided what they think the Bible teaches, and they're gonna read this in a way to make it fit that. Or they'll read individual verses that seem to fit that and just ignore all the ones that don't fit it. So let's go ahead and take a look uh, through this. So verse 1 says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Um, then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Okay, Now, in the pre-trib dispensational world, the day of the Lord is not the rapture. It is Armageddon. Unless they're talking about imminency. Okay? If they're talking about imminency, then the day of the Lord is the rapture. Because the day of the Lord is going to come as a thief in the night. He can come at any moment. All right, and, but then if you say, yeah, but the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. Well, the day of the Lord's not the rapture. All right, they still haven't decided which one they're going to do. 
Alright, so uh, right there, they you know they lose either way in that battle. So it just depends which argument you want to win that day. Do you want to win the eminency argument or do you want to win the uh, day of the Lord and being the rapture argument? You know, they'll never concede to both of them <laughs> or that you beat them on, on both ends. But notice this, too, though, because the thing is, when you when you look at the day of the Lord uh, in the Old Testament, it often does seem to be referring to Armageddon. And then what they like to do is act like the day of the Lord has to be some kind of 24 hour period. But that's just not the case, because, for example, notice in verse two or in verse one. So it says the spoil will be divided in the midst of thee. You know, the day of the Lord cometh it says, I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, women ravished, half the city shall go forth to captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Now we know from what the new you know what the New Testament teaches that there's a three and a half year period right there. Jerusalem is compassed about with armies right before the abomination of desolation takes place, and it remains that way until Jesus Christ returns and Armageddon is fought. So we already see that, you know, this day of the Lord, that, you know, the events are, you know, while I do believe that Armageddon is kind of the main event, because that is when the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints, that is the main event. But you got to understand that the rapture and all of the wrath of God is all leading up to that final battle. And that's something that I emphasized and I showed in the Revelation message is that everything that we see when it comes to the trumpets and when it comes to the vials, it's all leading towards that final battle. It's all leading to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So starting with the rapture, God removes His people from this earth. Why? Because God is prepping this world for a battle like never before. And while that battle takes place, at that final, at the end of the seven years, at the battle of the great day of God Almighty, all that horrible stuff that happens on the earth before that is all meant to lead to that. So if it's all referred to as the day of the Lord, okay, it's not, you know, while on one hand, yes, the day of the Lord is, you know, the battle of the great day of God Almighty, but at the same time, all those other events lead up to it. And they are all about the day of the Lord. So hopefully that makes sense. But, you know, one, a couple of the mistakes that the preacher was doing when they were reading this passage, they look at verses 1 through 3, and they just assume they all happen at the same time, but they ignore clear Scripture that lays out the details of these events. Luke 21.20 20 says, when ye, sh when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh, then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter thereinto, for these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. So you all see that? These be the days of vengeance. Now, I, I want you to all make a note of this, okay? I'm, still, I'm working on debunking a lot of this preterist teaching here. But here's one thing that the preterists often like to do. The preterists... They love to go to Matthew chapter 24 and try to prove that it was all fulfilled. And there's stuff in Matthew chapter 24 that I think you could say or definitely looks like it was fulfilled. 
You know, in Matthew 24, Jesus said, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Some say it was referring to that generation then. Some say it's referring to the generation when all these things begin to happen. But at the same time, no preterist can ever explain to you, you know, what happened to the rapture? How the rapture happened in 70 AD? None of them can ever do that. There's a bunch of stuff. While on one hand, you could say, all right, yeah, I, I can say that, you know, that probably happened. Yeah, it does look like in Matthew 24, he may very well be talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. But there's still a lot of stuff that for sure hasn't been fulfilled, kind of like what we see in Zechariah. There's a lot of stuff that was fulfilled at Christ's first coming, but there's a lot of stuff that definitely was not fulfilled at his second coming. So what is the tribulation, the wrath of God, what is all of that about? Well, these be the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. So some stuff probably did get fulfilled in Matthew chapter 24 or in 70 AD, but all things definitely didn't get fulfilled. The dead in Christ didn't rise during that time. The rapture sure didn't happen. Jesus Christ sure didn't set up His you know, millennial kingdom during that time. Because if he did, this new heaven and new earth stinks. Because there's plenty of sickness, sorrow, dying, death, and pain. The former things are still here. So there's all these things that while on one hand, yeah, you can say a lot of prophetic stuff happened during that time, but it all didn't. Not all of it happened. Yet, one of these days, you know, things are going to kick off and God is going to start fulfilling all the things that He promised in prophecy from the Old Testament, the stuff that didn't get done at Christ's first coming and the stuff that we see in the New Testament that we believe is still in the future. These things are still to come. And just because a lot of prophecy probably did get fulfilled in 70 AD, the days of vengeance, you know, that all things fulfilled has not happened yet. There's, there's no way you can make an argument that that happened. But verse 23 says, but woe unto them that are with child and them that give suck in those days, for there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down to the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And there shall be signs in the sun and the moon and in the stars upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and looking after those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory and when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your head, for your redemption draweth nigh. Now, folks, I've been hearing people trying to make this argument that a lot of this stuff took place as far as the men's hearts failing them for fear, crying to the mountains and rocks, falling us all that stuff. They're trying to act like all those things happened in 70 AD, but nobody can explain where the rapture was, where Christ returned in the clouds. Okay? That did not happen. Okay, and so if some of this stuff did happen in 70 AD, it, it definitely didn't all happen. So there is still something to come. And the events probably there, you know, are going to be very similar to some of those things, but there's no way, there's no way this stuff happens. So we're going to know something's about to happen one of these days when Jerusalem is about to be taken. I, I think we ought to be looking for that. I don't believe the abomination of desolation has taken place. Not the one spoken of by Daniel the prophet. I believe the abomination of desolation took place spoken of by 
you know, Fox's Book of Martyrs. But I'm looking for the one spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Okay? So, what, what do I mean by that? Well, the one in Fox's Book of Martyrs, yeah, I believe that event that they wrote about historically happened. I just don't believe it was the one that Jesus was talking about that he said Daniel wrote about. So, um, just because some historical events have taken place that look like some of the prophetic events doesn't mean that it's all done. It doesn't give us an excuse to go into some of this crazy uh, preterist teaching. I think, that's, I think that's some dangerous stuff. So, Revelation 11 verse 1 says, And there uh, was given unto me a reed like unto a rod, and an angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. So, I'm showing all this to just basically show and to prove that in the first three verses of Zechariah 14, it covers three and a half years, not just one day. So don't let the dispensationalists go to that verse there because we're going to see where Jesus steps His foot on the Mount of Olives that's coming up and then they act like that 24-hour period is the day of the Lord all by itself and therefore the rapture is not the day of the Lord that is, that's just a really, really bad argument. So, um, verse 4 of Zechariah 14 says, And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. Okay? Now, that day, is it a 24-hour period? Sometimes when it talks about that day, it's, it's referring to that time. You know, during that, you know, during that, uh, in those, you know, in those, in those days, as a word, you know, term we would probably use today, during those days, during that time, you know, that's when that's going to take place. It doesn't necessarily have to be a 24-hour period there, but so it'll stand on the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Now, I can tell you for a fact, an eyewitness, a personal eyewitness encounter, that this has not happened yet. Okay? This has not happened. In fact, look at your, look, turn in your Bibles to your maps. Okay? If you have maps in your Bibles, and just look at uh, a map of Israel, and you'll notice in there on the left, the Mediterranean Sea, and then on the right, you'll see the Dead Sea, or the Salt Sea, and you'll notice if you look towards the top of the Salt Sea, and then you look to the left a little ways, you'll see Jerusalem there. And the Bible says that the, that mountain is going to be split. Part of the mountain is going to go to the north. Part of it's going to go to the south. Okay. So imagine a uh, big crack going straight through there, which would make water from the Mediterranean go into the Dead Sea. And it's not in Zechariah, but I believe it's in his... Uh, I forgot where it's at. The Bible does prophesy that one of these days, the waters of the Dead Sea will be healed. That men are going to cast their nets on the Dead Sea. I believe during the millennium, people will actually be fishing in the Dead Sea. Why? Because Jesus Christ, He's going to come. He's going to step His foot on the Mount of Olives. And that mountain is going to split in two and you can go on Google Earth, look at it. You can see it there in the maps. And I do. I believe it's going to create. It, and it says it's going to create a valley. Look what it says in verse um, verse five. 
It says, and if ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal, yea, ye shall flee as ye, like, as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the Lord my God shall come and all saints with thee. So, that's what we read about in Jude where it says, uh, Behold, or in Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of thee, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of His saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all their ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. So this here is that event. This is when we're coming back with Christ. Not coming for Christ. You've got the, you've got the post-tribbers out there who teach a post-seven-year rapture, which I think is really foolish just because... Yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that we're going to get raptured up and then come right back down. Okay. I, I think that I think that's a pretty bad argument, and uh, and the preachers always try to accuse us of teaching this. Okay. I've never heard anybody on our side teach anything like that. But um, you know, if Jesus Christ is going to come back with all the saints, then that means he has to have already gathered the saints in order to do that. And I believe he does it, you know, at the beginning of all these things, you know, around verse one of Zechariah chapter 14, not necessarily in verses four and five. So, um, all right. So let's look at a couple examples, though, where pre-tribbers are combining events that should not be combined. Okay, so. Once again, this is just a, this is just bad reading that they do. Okay, in chapter twelve, verse nine, we've looked at this already uh, on previous weeks. But it says, "So come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look on me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one that mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn." So notice, that's in chapter 12. If you read chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14, it's, you know, it's one continuous thing. Okay? We're seeing these events in the order that they happen. They try to connect chapter you know, 12 and verse 10 with chapter 14. But that's not right. Why, now, why do they do that? Because they don't want to teach that Revelation 1.7 is about the rapture. That, that also messes up their theology. So they try to put, even though the Bible explains this event, them looking on Him who they pierced, even though the Bible puts that before Jesus Christ returns to this earth, the pre-tribbers have just decided they're going to move it where they want it. And it works good. Again, if you don't know the whole book of Zechariah, it works good if I go and I just read verse, you know, four, chapter 14 and then I just jump over to chapter 12 and I just read verses 9 and 10. If you don't, if you haven't studied the book, if you haven't read the whole book, you might hear me do that and think, wow, you know, this is what the Bible teaches. You know, these poster people, they don't even know what they're talking about. No, these people, they, they've never read the whole book of Zechariah. And if they did, they read through it fast, just daydreaming through the whole thing. You know, we've all done that before. But they've never actually taken the time to go through it slowly and study it. And they don't realize that, no, what we're seeing here in chapter 12 is a prophecy 
This part of the prophecy was fulfilled at Christ's first coming. The Gospel of John tells us that it happened at His first coming. And yet, but they, they've got to make it about something in the future. Why? So they go to Revelation 1.7, Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Even so, Amen. Notice that it doesn't talk about grace being poured out and supplication being poured during that time. When Jesus Christ returns, what is it, how does it explain Jesus in Revelation chapter 1? It talks about His eyes being as a flame of fire. When Jesus Christ returns the next time, He's coming to take us out of here, but He is just getting us out of here so we don't have to be here to see His wrath poured out and have to participate in that. And so Revelation clearly explains that when He comes, that all the kindreds of the earth are going to be wailing because of Him. But what have the pre-tribbers done? What have the Zionists done? They've just decided, well, it's all the kindreds except for Israel. All Israel is going to get saved during that time. Wrong. Okay, They're going to be wailing too. And here's the thing about it. They're specifically mentioned as going to be wailing. Because it mentions they were the ones that pierced Him. So, it's just, it's absolutely insane. And you know, I think that God put that in there on purpose. You say, so you don't think there's any connection between, you know, chapter, you know, Zechariah 12 and Revelation 1? Oh no, I actually do think that there's a connection there. I think God worded it that way on purpose to just remind the Jews that, hey, remember what I prophesied in Zechariah 12? When I came that first time, I poured out my grace and my supplication on you. I prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And you all looked on me who you pierced. And I gave you 2,000 years a chance you could have believed. You know, I would have grafted you back in if you would abide and not still in unbelief. But you rejected me. And so now, the next time you look on me who you pierced, I'm not pouring out grace and supplication on you on that day. I'm pouring out fire and brimstone. So I do think there's a connection there. But the difference between what takes place at Christ's second coming versus His first coming is enormous. Why? Because now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. That was a prophecy from the Old Testament that was given to Israel. We prophesied in a time accepted. That time is now. And if they don't get saved now, when He returns, they're going to be in trouble. And any of them that survive, you know, that battle of the great day of God Almighty, after Jesus Christ sits on His throne, one of His first orders of business is going to be for Him to bring out those who would not that He should reign over them, and they're going to slay Him before Him. So, you know, you can see what they're off by a mile. It's, it's interesting, you know, there's something wrong with your theology when it doesn't fit the whole Bible. There's something wrong with your theology when one verse sounds pretty good, but there's 20 other verses that's just, you're off by a mile. That's when you've got to start rethinking some things. That's when you've got to say, you know what? we got something wrong somewhere. And they definitely, uh, we, I think we've already you know, showed several things that they got wrong. So look at verse 6 of chapter 14. It says, It shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord... Not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light, 
And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, and half of them toward the hinder sea, in summer and in winter shall it be. So that's referring to Mediterranean and the Dead Sea. Just like we showed you on the map, and that is exactly what would happen um, you know, um, if that mountain were to split in two, like the Bible says it's going to. So, uh, it says in verse 9, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day. There shall be one Lord and His name one. Okay, Now, what does that verse mean right there? Well, what does the Bible teach in Daniel? When it talks about that image, remember that vision of the image? And remember the stone that was cut out without hands that went and it hit the feet of that image and it grew into a great mountain that filled the whole earth? Now, we talked about this when going through the Revelation series. What that's talking about, these mountains often represent kingdoms in the Bible. And the kingdom that's going to grow from that stone, the Bible says it's going to fill the entire earth. But notice it's going to, it's going to hit the feet of that stone. That's one of the reasons I believe that the Antichrist's kingdom, he's going to set it up in Jerusalem. Now, why is he going to set it up in Jerusalem? Clearly because you know the Antichrist wants what is the Lord's. He knows that the real Messiah is going to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. So naturally, he's going to try to do that. But that stone, it's going to hit that, the feet of that kingdom. And so Jesus clearly, when he comes to this earth, where is it he's landing? He's landing in Jerusalem. His kingdom is going to begin there in Jerusalem. And it's going to grow throughout the whole world. And then during that time, the reason it's saying uh, there shall be one Lord and His name one, it's saying that because of the fact that it's not going to be so much the United States anymore. You know, There's not going to be this you know, leader and that king and all these things. No. There's going to be one Lord and His name one. The whole earth will be the Lord's at that point. It's not just going to be you know, a regional empire that he possesses. He is going to possess the entire earth. He'll, he will rule the whole world. That's why he's saying that. So verse 10 says, And the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Remen, south of Jerusalem, and it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate unto the place of the first gate, unto the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananiel unto the king's wine presses. And men shall dwell in it, and there shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. Okay? Folks, this right here is positive proof that Jerusalem is not Babylon. Okay? I mean, I'm all for making Jerusalem as bad as possible, but Jerusalem is Sodom and Egypt. Okay? But it's not, it's not Babylon. Babylon is going to be destroyed. It's never going to be inhabited again. The events that we're looking at here take place after the destruction of Babylon that is never going to be inhabited again. And it says here, Jerusalem is going to be safely inhabited. This is after Jesus steps His foot on the Mount of Olives. I've never heard the Babylon is Jerusalem people explain this passage. I said, I, I really have no idea uh, what they can do with this because said Jesus Christ, He's going to rule and reign from Mount Zion. That is in Jerusalem. That's a, that's a part of Jerusalem. So, you know, 
we can be down in Jerusalem all we want, but God is going to reign from there. But it's going to be after He takes care of business there. And until Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning there, I'm not interested in supporting Jerusalem or any of their leaders. So, uh, I'm waiting for Him to get there. I'm not worried about possessing the land and figure out who it belongs to and all that stuff until Jesus gets there. Once He gets there, I'm going to get real interested in Jerusalem. So, verse um, 12. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. I, I always refer to this as the Indiana Jones thing. When they open up the Ark of the Covenant, I've never seen the movie before. I'm not that carnal. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey, it, it's a, that's what I picture in my head. Yeah, I know you all have seen it before. But anyway, uh, pardon my carnality there. It says in verse 13, It shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be upon them, and they shall lay hold everyone on the hand of his neighbor, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. And Judah also shall fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together, gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. And so shall be the plague of the horse, of the mule, of the camel, of the ass, of all the beasts that shall be in these tents, and this plague. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. Okay, Now, here's the question. Will the Feast of Tabernacles make a comeback? Or is this something that would have happened under the Old Covenant? Now, I'm not going to get dogmatic on this, but one thing that you're going to see, if you go back and you go into, I think it's in Leviticus, where it lays out all the different feasts, you know, these feasts were not something that were you just got to pick and choose which one you wanted to do. Okay, part of keeping the Passover was also keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread that was connected with the Passover. After you kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you were supposed to uh, you know, keep track of the days. And like I think it was 40, 49 days later. I might get some of these out of order. You would have the Feast of Pentecost. All these things were connected with each other. When you go read that passage, it's written all out like it's all one commandment. You know why? Because it was. You know, when it comes to the Old Testament law, you just don't get to pick and choose what you're going to do, pick what you like, throw out what you don't like. And that's what all the Hebrew roots people do today. All the Hebrew roots people do that. They pick and choose. They do what they want to do from the Passover, but they ignore all the other stuff. That is hypocritical. And there is no doubt we should not be trying to keep the fast over. Therefore, we should not be trying to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You know, and, or, or the Feast of Pentecost. And some will say, well, it's okay to keep the feast that prophesied Christ. Or not, we shouldn't keep the feast that prophesied first, Christ's first coming because those all happen. But the fall feast, those all represent Christ's second coming so we can keep those. And the Hebrew roots people, they love the Feast of Tabernacles too. But at the same time, they don't go to Jerusalem for it. You know what they did? They made up their own rule. You know where they go in America? They have several places, but one of the main places they go to is Branson, Missouri. I was there when they were keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. It was stupid. They, you, know where they, you, know where, you know where they stayed in the Feast of 
tabernacles. You know what a tabernacle is? It's a tent. They stayed in the same hotel we were in. How is that keeping a feast of tabernacles when they're staying in a hotel? Okay, These people are hypocrites that try to do that. And there's a weirdo compound cult Hebrew Roots Church right on the outside of Sterling and they do a feast of tabernacles out there. They don't even go to Branson to do it. They just do it right out here. They've got a place where they can park all these campers. There's like a bunch of campers out there. I think these people live out there. So there's like a compound. It's really weird. You know, go drive by it sometime. And I went, and, but um, they are. They're, they're like, they're like full-blown cult. Okay? But here's the thing, too. With the Feast of Tabernacles, I do think it's possible this still may come to pass as it is written because of the fact that you know there are no sacrifices that are involved. I believe the sacrifices are all done. And the whole purpose of the Feast of Tabernacles, it was done to remember, God wanted them to always remember when they were strangers and pilgrims. God wanted to remember how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they dwelt in tabernacles before they had possessed the land. But understand that command to fulfill that, that was only supposed to be done, or it was done, once they possessed the land. Okay. Now, even today, if a Jew were trying, you know, if it was still a thing, to be Jewish as it was in the Old Testament, they wouldn't keep the Feast of Tabernacles because they don't possess the land. All of it anyway. They don't, they don't even possess the Temple Mount. So therefore, they could say today they are strangers and pilgrims and really shouldn't be doing it. During this time though, we will have possessed the land. In fact, we will have inherited the earth during this time. So, I could kind of see maybe God doing the Feast of Tabernacles again as a reminder for when we were strangers and pilgrims on this earth. Because the Bible says right now, we are like Abraham. We're strangers and pilgrims on this earth. So it would be foolish for us now to keep the Feast of Tabernacles because we live the Feast of Tabernacles. Spiritually speaking, we don't have a continuing city. We seek one that is to come. So God very well could bring this back during the, during the millennial kingdom, I don't know for sure that he will. Um, but at the same time, if somebody's like, "Yeah, we're going to keep the feast of tabernacles in the millennial," okay, I'm, I'm not going to get in a fight with them over that. But at the same time, when the millennium comes, if we don't keep the feast of tabernacles, I'm not going to be like, you know, Lord, what's going on? I'm just going to assume, well, that's something that would have taken place under that old covenant because we'd have probably been keeping all of the feasts if you know had had uh, the old covenant system been the thing that worked. So, because once again, understand, this was written, you know, assuming they're going to obey the things that they were told to obey in chapters 1 through 6. And they didn't. And because of that, their rejection of the Messiah, God brought in the new and the better covenant. So, um, this definitely though isn't something we need to get in a fight about. And it's that, but none of this proves that people are okay keeping the Feast of Tabernacles today. If somebody wants to go and try to keep the Feast of Tabernacles today, I'm going to mark them as a Hebrew roots weirdo and I'm going to stay away from them. Okay? Do not try keeping those things. You make a mockery out of these things. The, those, those Old Testament feasts, they had a purpose, they had meaning. 
and they had a way that they were supposed to be done that was not to be altered, that was not to be messed with, and you're walking on dangerous ground when you try to pretend that you are keeping those things, the safe thing to do is just to say, you know what, thank God Jesus did these things for me and I don't have to do them. And I'm not going to do it. I'm not even going to try to keep the Passover. I'm not even going to try to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I'm not doing any of that stuff. When we do our Lord's Supper, I do not call it a replacement of the Passover. I do not base everything we do in the Lord's Supper on what they did in the Old Testament because I don't want to make it look like I'm trying to keep the Passover or that we are keeping the Passover in any way. God is very particular about this thing. You say God doesn't care that much about that stuff. Well, God cared an awful lot just when Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire. And the fire came out and consumed those guys. And I do, I believe God is very angry when we take those things from the Old Testament and we start messing with them. That is dangerous stuff. And I believe, you know, I believe these Hebrew roots people are as lost as lost can be. I do not believe there's any salvation in these Hebrew roots crowd. And you better watch it. You know, you know, Kent Hovind, I've always liked Kent Hovind. But, you know, Kent Holman's been getting really weird lately. I watched him when he was having his fake marriage to the second lady that they, since it was fake, they didn't have to get divorced when she decided to leave him. He's blown a stinking shofar at his wedding thing. And it sounded terrible. He did a terrible job at it. All right? Now, you say, what's wrong with blowing a shofar? You know, there's nothing wrong with blowing a shofar. I got a little one in my office that I got when I was in Israel. The problem I have with these people blowing their stinking shofars is they think they're doing Old Testament stuff. That's what's so dumb about that. That Hebrew Roots cult church out in Sterling, I was watching one of their videos. They start out their service blowing, blowing a shofar. Hey, that is dangerous. We do not want to try to incorporate those things into our practices that we do in the church today. That's dangerous, dangerous stuff. So anyway... In verse 18, it says, and if the family of Egypt go not up, talking about to the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? Uh, if they go, come not, go not up, and come not, they that have no rain, there, uh, there should be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So any countries who don't, don't participate during this time, they're going to struggle, they're going to suffer. God, God's not going to bless them during that year. So it is, and it's also possible too, because it mentions specifically these other nations. Maybe it's just going to be them that God has keeping the Feast of Tabernacles just to remind them, you're the strangers and pilgrims on earth during this time. You know, I don't know for sure. We can only speculate. At the end of the day, when it comes to the millennium, there is a lot more that we don't know than what we do know. And people need to get a hold of that. There's a lot of things you know, that we, we do know, but we, there's a lot we don't know. You say, well, we need to know. What, what we need to know, we will know when Jesus gets here. And since He isn't here right now, we're not in the Millennial Kingdom, therefore we don't need to worry about it. So, don't get too caught up in that stuff. And, and get, you know, listen to some of the weird teaching that goes along with that. Verse 20, in that day there should be, uh, upon the bells of the horses, holiness unto the Lord, and the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar, 
Every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and see therein. And in that day, there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Now notice how this book ends. The, the very last verse is saying there's not going to be any more Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. It, now, that's, that's interesting because I do believe that's something that's clearly changed under the New Covenant. It was all about where you came from under the Old Covenant. But in the New Covenant, God's made us all of one blood. God broke down the middle wall of partition that was between us. We see in heaven, uh, in, in Revelation 7, after the rapture takes place, there's people from every part of the world, from every language, from every kindred, every kindred. Would that not include a Canaanite? Okay? So, you know, what if somebody who is a Canaanite, they get saved, you know, isn't this going to be a problem for them? Are they, is Simon the Canaanite? It was one of Jesus' disciples. He's not going to be allowed in there because he's a Canaanite. No, because the truth is, when we get saved, we're none of those things anymore. We're all in Christ. So on one hand, yes, there's not going to be any Canaanites in the house of the Lord. But there's not going to be any Americans either. You know why? Because we won't be those things that we're... Those aren't going to matter anymore. We're going to be in Christ. We will say, well, you know, I'm an American or I'm, I'm white or I'm African or, or whatever. No. When you are born again, okay, you have you are now in Christ, and you say, "Well, physically I know, but not in the resurrection, because we're all going to be changed. We're all going to have a body like Christ's body." So, on one hand, yes, there's not going to be any Canaanites in the house of the Lord, <clears throat> but on the other hand, that doesn't even really matter right now. That, and it's not, it's not going to matter then. Under the Old Covenant, it would have mattered. Under the Old Covenant, those laws about the Canaanites and the Moabites and all those people, it still would have applied physically to them. But now, those things do not matter. So, you know, the final three and a half years from Jerusalem, or for Jerusalem, it's going to involve them being surrounded by the armies of earth. They're going to be taken, the house is rifled, women ravished, all that stuff. But then it's going to end with Jesus Christ returning in the clouds, you know, only to leave them behind, pour out his wrath for three and a half years, only to show up and to kill the rest of them that are left. That's the, that's the real end. That's the slightly different ending to what Bill Grady is teaching. Everywhere he goes, teaching his Romans 11 message. Where he always gives me my honorable mention. Okay. That that is clearly the man. Just he's only, he only reads Roman part of Romans eleven, part of Zechariah, and like nothing for the new, else from the New Testament. That's, that's just that's how he gets his theology. So anyway, that is that is the book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah. It can be all summed up as this. It was a book. It was written to get them rebuilding their temple. That way, God could put His name in Jerusalem again and start working with Israel again after their captivity in Babylon for 70 years, only then for the Messiah to finally come and for Him to purify the people and for Him to set up His kingdom. They did not follow the Lord. 
They rejected the Messiah. They killed the Messiah. So now, all these things that were prophesied about Him defeating all their enemies and everything, those things aren't going to happen until in the future. And they're not going to be beneficiaries of it unless they get saved. Unless they, unless they believe on Christ. So, there definitely are things in Zechariah that are yet to be fulfilled. And we're looking forward to those things. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. I pray uh, You'll help us. Lord, as we just continue uh, studying different parts of Your Word, I thank You for all that we were able to learn uh, from this book. I really feel like it's been uh, opened up to me. And uh, Lord, I just pray that You'll help us to uh, put the work in that's necessary when it comes to some of these difficult passages of Scripture and help us to just get the Word out on the truth of these things. Help us not to be ignorant about these passages. Lord, so we can not fall prey to the dispensationalists who uh, like to cherry-pick verses here and there. But You'll help us to be... Uh, just throw students of all your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Well,